Welcome to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and the awesome tunage is courtesy of country legend Bobby Mackey. Asylums. Back when I had my radio show, I did a few asylum shows, and I always enjoyed doing the research. I learned so much. A lot of it was heartbreaking, though, the way the people were treated in these asylums and what went on beyond these asylum walls. So much history, and maybe that's why I love to investigate them so much. Don't worry, there will be an asylum episode in the future about all types of them. But this week I have my dear friend, Detroit Paranormal Expeditions co-founder Todd Bonner joining me. You heard from his fellow co-founder and team member and his best friend Jeff Adkins last week. Todd Bonner, it's always a blast chatting with you, my friend. You've been on my radio show a couple times, but for the first time, let me welcome you to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Oh, me too. We always have such a great time chatting for sure. So today we're going to be talking about Eloise. First off, if you can just share a little of the history behind Eloise Asylum. Yeah, Eloise is located in uh, Metro Detroit in a city called Westland, Michigan. It started in around 1839, and it closed as a psychiatric facility, I would say, in like early 80s, 1980 or so. It started out as a poorhouse with a farm, and eventually developed into an asylum, a TV sanitarium, and then eventually to a hospital also. I had a general hospital on site too. It was uh, 902 acres, had 78 buildings, it had a post office, bakery, fire department, police department, tobacco farm, pretty much a self-contained city. And it operated that way until, like I said, the, the, the late 80s is when the actual, or the early 80s is when the actual psychiatric hospital shut down um, because of funding. And I think that pretty much happened across the United States. Most of the mental hospital funding was cut, so they had to close most of them. But it was a huge facility. At its peak, it had around 10,000 patients. 2,000 staff, and it was the biggest psychiatric facility in the United States. That's incredible. Yeah, you you see so many asylums just scattered everywhere, and it is always unique when you see, like, Eloise, or when you were talking about Eloise, it kind of reminded me of Letchworth Village in New York, just kind of have everything where there's no need to even leave. Right, and I think some of the bigger facilities like that made it that way, so they had so many patients it was just pretty much self-contained this this one was actually had gates all the way around it so the patients were free to roam on the, on the ground if they were allowed to i mean some were out of control where they couldn't be right um and the, and the grounds were beautiful and kept up but it was a psychiatric facility and i was reading some of the older books from the, like the 20s and 30s where they actually called the patients inmates so they were considered inmates even though they weren't criminals they had mental issues or, or whatnot um kind of fascinates me that that's what they were probably called and treated at. It had a, a lot of tragic history, um, a lot of suicides and patient abuse. Uh, healthcare wasn't that great back in those days, and there's no privacy at all. Most of the, the, the rooms are set up as wards where there'd be 50 to 100 beds, actually, in some of these wards, just bed after bed after bed with no walls, uh, wide open. Um, and they did electroshock therapy there, hydrotherapy, insulin therapy, they did lobotomies because that was what was known to work back in those days. 
but they also pioneered music therapy there, where they would either play music for the patients or actually have the patients themselves play instruments, pianos, uh, guitars, any kind of instrument to kind of treat a mental illness with more of a compassionate-type way of doing it instead of the old way. And it's still, music therapy is still used today, but they had pioneered that there at Elway's. Right. Well... I don't know, Todd, if you if they I was given the choice by electroshock therapy or music, I think I'd go the musical route. <laughs> I would too. It was, it was pretty barbaric. I've, I've seen videos. You know, they still use uh, electroshock therapy today, but not. It's more controlled. Yeah. Back then, it was just they would just hook you up, basically to almost like a car battery, and turn it on and and, and shock you. And the theory behind that was if you had depression or anxiety, that would just kind of reset your brain. And you would, it would temporarily really work, though, from what I'm reading. And like I said, I still use the same, but at low doses to help with issues like that. Next, use hydrotherapy that they would either control the temperature of the water with either severely cold or extremely hot. And, you know, the theory behind that, again, is if you had, uh, I was reading, like, depression mostly, they would, they would either change the temperature or kind of shock your system. And, again, that was a temporary fix. Now it's more you know, medication and outpatient therapy treatment. But back then, they would house you. And there's some interesting stories. You know, women didn't have a lot of rights back then. And I was reading that some husbands can drop their their wives off for issues with PMS, alcohol, and you would be locked into an asylum with people with legitimate mental illnesses. I also read a story about a, a woman that was a teacher. She graduated from University of Michigan. She was educated. Her brother had her committed because she got into debt, and she actually stayed in Eloise for almost a year before she hired an attorney, and a judge finally released her. Oh my but god! Those are kind of the things that went on back then. That you know, and Jeff and I do a lot of the research at this place. There's there's hundreds and hundreds of news articles and records, and, and it just amazes me at how things operated back then. And you couldn't get away with stuff like that now. But there was no social media, obviously, back then. Right. Uh, times, are, times, times are a lot different, definitely a lot different when they are now. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I was doing research for my asylum shows back in the day, I know that there were some where, especially women, their husbands could commit them if they didn't have enough meat on their table on their dinner plates but you know i have to kind of sympathize with the men i'm a huge meat eater i'm like honey this 10 ounce ain't gonna cut it i need a 12 or 15 ounce (laughs) just kidding but i mean isn't that crazy like how how just something like that could just happen and i know um back in the day a lot of people had epilepsy but people didn't know about epilepsy back in the day they just see them seizuring up and acting kind of out of control and you found yourself committed when poor thing you should have really just been in the regular hospital getting medical attention you know the medical and it was a practice back then it was more of a practice than it is now so they would try all these different treatments and surgery sometimes and they didn't know all these different ailments and illnesses, and, and they would just bunch everyone together when you probably shouldn't have been in a mental institution. You probably should have been in a general hospital to be treated. That's kind of stuff that's scary. You think about people that were basically normal locked in with people that were at extreme mental illness. And, you know, it just it blows my mind. I, when you read stories like that, and 
absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you, Todd. So talk a little bit about the first time you ever stepped foot inside Eloise. I know it was several years ago. Well, the first time for me personally, actually it was when I had my first paranormal experience. I was around 16 years old. And in high school, what's left of Eloise now is basically five buildings. But back in, when I was in high school in the late 80s, early 90s, there was around 30 buildings left, and they were wide open. So, you know, in high school, it was fun just to go, get a group of us and go explore. You get scared a little bit. So, I was dating at the time. We went to the basement. And these buildings are 200, 300,000 square feet. They're not small. Each of them. They were all big. So, we, go in the, we went in the basement, kind of exploring, and there were old records from, like, the 20s and 30s. It's kind of amazing, even back then. Yeah. And I heard a disembodied voice, a male voice telling us to get out. And at that time, there was just kids. And at that moment, there was only two of us in this basement that was huge. I mean, you're talking about a basement size of 200,000 square foot buildings, so a huge, massive basement. We walked around real quick and ran around. There was nobody else down there. And I knew at that moment that that wasn't someone that was living with us. It was, it was something else. But I didn't really come out with that because back in those days, you couldn't talk about it. There was no TV shows. It wasn't mainstream. And my father was a police officer. And I think, for me, I just kind of kept it to myself because that probably would have been mocked up in a place like Eloise, uh, thinking I'm crazy because I heard a voice like that. Yeah. So fast, fast forward to 2018, August of last year, <clears throat> we were granted permission to go investigate what's left of Eloise, which is called the D Building, which is around 200,000 square feet. It was administrative offices for all of Eloise. It housed 409 patients. And the post office was housed there. And all the doctors and administration were actually housed in the front of the building, and then the final part was in the back. So I was lucky enough to go back, kind of came full circle, and do a paranormal investigation in 2018, nearly 20-some years later. That's incredible. And that's neat that you guys get to, to this day, still go there and you know, do tours and people get to just kind of come and enjoy it themselves. That's definitely on my list of places to go to and obviously meet you and Jeff in person. Todd, for the people who are listening, who are interested, who either live in the Detroit area or Michigan or plan on going there, how can they go to these tours? We usually post those on our social media and we post them on our website, DetroitParanormalExpedition.com. And then we, we'll post them on our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, as soon as we get new dates rolling, which we're scheduling them now. So we should hopefully have openings and start tours Friday, September 13th. So it'll be a Friday 13th. Woohoo! That's what we're shooting, shooting for, yeah. So I'm going to do those all day. Jeff and I are, are off work that day. We're going to do them all day, starting in the afternoon. Um, people do enjoy the day tours because you can see more, and it's more we do the historic, historical aspect of it also, not just the paranormal, because the history of it is pretty phenomenal, too. Right. And then, you know, the people that want to hear the paranormal stories, we'll tell them our experiences, experiences that we've heard from people that have worked there. We've been lucky enough to meet a lot of staff that worked here in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even. And they've told us different things. We've been able to piece together how the, the, that D building itself operated. Um, there wasn't a lot of records pertaining to, like, the operations and staff. But we were lucky enough to have nurses and orderlies come through on the tours last year and kind of give us some insight of, of how that really operated, which is, it's, like I said, it's fascinating. I love the place. It scares me sometimes. To me, it's haunted. And I, I don't you know people, 
you know, are sometimes skeptical about that, or why is it a scion haunted or a prison? Or, uh, hauntings can happen anywhere, but I think on this particular property, when there's estimated over 10,000 deaths took place on this property, we're going to have some of that energy stay. Some are good, some are bad, and some are residual. But it's definitely haunted. I've, I've had way too many experiences there over the last year that just, they're unexplainable. And, and people that come even on the tours have had experiences. People that aren't even into the paranormal just want to come and see this place and, and listen to what we have to say of taking pictures and audio while they're there and capture shadow figures and disembodied voices. So people that, other than us, have captured things that are pretty amazing too. Kind of validate that it is haunted, at least in our eyes. Oh, absolutely. And I do want to hear about some of those hauntings and unexplained things that have happened to you yourself but before we do it, it, it you know out of all the places in the world that are haunted it makes most sense to me anyways that asylums and prisons and jails and penitentiaries and what have you would be haunted just because they're such dark places so many bad things happen there and so many deaths are linked and connected to them like it almost seems like they're stuck there you know and it's just so full of despair and desperation and sadness and anger and so it absolutely makes sense that those would be the places that would be mostly haunted, you know? Right. And on the flip side of that, there's, there's people that stayed like in a, you know, asylums and sometimes even in prison where I can give a prison person that lived at a prison for maybe 40, 50 years. Maybe they were rehabilitated. Maybe they committed a horrible crime had to go to prison, but they died in prison, but they were reformed. They were changed. Yeah. In prison, the guards and the inmates were like their family and friends because that's all they knew. And same with asylums. Some of these people I've, I've read were, there for 50 some years so that was their family that was their home that was a place of, a, a place of peace for them and so the other side where people hated being there um they were murdered there they committed suicide there they were depressed you know they had a bad experience there's some people that had good experiences there and those energies also linger i think too so could you get, you can get the good or bad even these horrible horrible situations there's people that actually that that was their home you know i mean that's all they knew Right. Their whole life, basically, for their adult life. So, and like I said, the, the staff and the patients, those are their friends and family, basically. Which is sad, in a way, but, you know, even, even when they pass on, that might be a reason why they still linger. Part of their energy still lingers there, because that meant so much to them, unfortunately. Right, absolutely. And I can't imagine spending even a week in an asylum, let alone five decades or whatever, And, you know, if you weren't insane when you were committed, I'm sure after a few weeks you were insane just because of, like, you know, the conditions and how you were treated and seeing everybody else around you and stuff in their state like that. Very unfortunate stuff. But, Todd, let's jump into some of those most memorable moments, unexplained and haunting moments for you within the walls of El Louise. Well, you know, the first night we ever went there was August of 2018. It was our first night ever investigating. It was around two o'clock in the morning. I was on the third floor. There's actually four of us on the third floor. And I had, I had got on my phone. I was catching up on my social media, kind of taking a break, sitting on the floor, and everyone was kind of talking around me. And so I got involved with my phone, and everyone had kind of walked away, and I wasn't paying attention. So five minutes go back, I look up, and no one's around. Hmm. So at that time, we were doing like a Facebook Live with a static cam. And I had the, the, TV, the monitor and our table set up on the third floor in one of these ward dormitories. So I went over to start, you know, answering questions to people, and I got a little unnerved. I heard footsteps coming from the back of the ward coming towards me. So I turn around, take my flashlight, 
you know, say hello. You know, I, I thought maybe Jeff and those guys had snuck back around and tried to scare me. Yeah. Pretty much. I thought they were playing a prank on there. And I went back and there's nobody there. So when I said hello, like three or four times, the noise has stopped. I'm human. I get scared sometimes. I mean, I've been scared a handful of times doing this. I mean, I must have done over 200 investigations or more. Yeah. And there's a handful of times that actually scare me. Just your natural instinct kicks in and you're like, scared. This was one of them. Trying to shake it off, I went back and it made me feel comfortable talking to live people on Facebook Live, believe it or not, even though there's no one there. I can still talk and they're in. Yeah. But the noises started, five minutes later, the noises started up again and they got louder and louder. And I said hello and I could feel the presence coming towards me while I could hear these footsteps coming towards me and they didn't stop. They got louder and louder and closer and closer. So I basically just took off. And we were lucky enough, or I was lucky enough, I guess, if you can call it luck, that we had our static cams going on that floor, and the audio was still running. So you can see me walk out of the building. I walk out of the building, go down all the way, and there's no elevator, no power, so I had to run down the stairs from the third floor to the bottom floor. And everyone's outside. So I grabbed Matt, I, Matt, I think, from the team. I said, you got to come up here. So this took about 10 minutes or so to go outside, get those guys, and come back up. Well, in the meantime, nothing shows up on the cameras. You see me leave. You don't see any person or any animal, but you hear things moving, your footsteps for a solid five minutes, shower curtain moving over in the shower room, cabinets moving, opening, closing, and this goes on for a good five minutes. And, you know, with paranormal occurrences, it's usually very subtle. We have to go back and listen to it again closely, actually see if you heard that. You right. I mean? This was pretty much loud and blatant movement and activity and that was the first night we'd ever investigated but that shook me up i mean i felt it and i heard it coming towards me and also i didn't hear this in the moment but uh digital recorders running there's a woman actually humming at the same time i'm saying hello hello anyone there you can actually hear it and the footsteps sound a little different on the digital recorder you can it sounds like someone with keys jingling i always thought maybe it's an orderly maybe walking the hall still but then it just it just goes and goes and all of a sudden it stops stops for about five minutes and that's it don't hear it again you see matt and i come up in the room look around we don't find anyone and that was that experience the first night we were there isn't that incredible wow yeah that's quite the welcoming committee yeah, but it, you know and then over the course of the last year or so i mean we get shadow figures we've got disembodied voices we'll use our spirit we use a geo box these are hand crafted spirit boxes that Justin and george brown have built for us we have and we have different kinds of Kitty Stafford build us one and Dave Cultwriter build us one uh, Jay Prather build us we have like eight different types of spirit boxes we try them all all these guys work hard to develop these things so we try and get one of them from each and, and try them at different locations so a lot of times my name comes through there I don't know what it is if they like me there or what there's an incident I took my son there about a month ago Jackson's his name and he's interested in the paranormal someone he's 13 and be 14 so I took him and there's a group of us, Brandy and Jeff and Joe and uh, myself and a couple other people. And we went to the nurse's station on the second floor. So the spirit box starts talking, of course, saying my name. And in the spirit box, we use a hack radio that scans probably 80 to 100 radio stations per minute. It doesn't stop on them, just goes right through. It stops, keeps scanning, scanning, scanning. So when it says my name or says a sentence, it's almost, that's when you know it's, it's not the radio station because it goes so quick. Right. Scan so so quickly. There's no way I can say even a word, like a fragment of a word, if that. But it said, your son's here. Your son's cute. His name's Jackson. And Jackson's eyes got so big. <laughs> he was like, 
Yeah. So I said, you know, my son's here. Please don't focus on him. But I kept focusing on him a little bit. So we lost. Um, we came back, another, I think, a week or two later. And started trying to spirit box, geo box this time. We tried different ones to see if we get different responses. But it doesn't matter what we use. It still says my name. They'll say sentences to me or, or talk to me. So again, it asks, where's Jackson? Where's your son? He wasn't there with us this time. So I, it's got like a memory. And these are intelligent. This isn't a residual. I, I know there's some residual there too. But this is intelligent haunting that interact with me and other people too. It's not just me, which I find kind of fascinating in this place. Yeah. You know, it is interesting when you're at a location, especially one that you frequently go to, and it's like they're greeting you, you know, they're saying your name. And yeah. it's interesting that they, like, you know, keep acknowledging your son, too. And there's been so many times where I'm at a location, Todd, and my name will come through, through the ovulus, it'll come through as Tesla, but right. I I get evps of my name being whispered Tessa, and it is it's exciting it's neat and i could understand though that your son was uncomfortable like what the hell's going on you know right this is, i mean he's he likes the urban exploring part of it what what could kid wouldn't want to like go through a huge building like this right and he's followed what i do obviously because it's kind of part of my life now but he's never had like an experience like that. His, his eye, just the look on his face is hilarious. His eyes are <laughs> so big. And he's looking around and he's like, yep, see, this is, this is what happens. There's times where I feel comfortable there, but I really don't go there by myself. I don't like going there by myself. And when I go in the basement, I feel really uneasy for some reason. Uh, we had an experience in the basement. Jeff and I, I, I heard this was a woman like laughing, but it was like a cackle, a scary cackle. When you're in the basement, it's a long, long basement from one end to the next, it's pitch black, so you can't even see where it's coming from. That's another time I just bolted up the stairs and got out of there. But it's, it's, it's something happens every time we go there almost. And it doesn't matter day or night. It could be in the day. We've had stuff happen in the daytime. It's one of those places that it was never had investigated before by paranormal team. We were the first ones in there. And I think, to me, this is just a theory that they haven't got to talk to people. I mean, they may have talked to workers that were there noises or whatever, but we're actually trying to communicate with them. So this could be like a hundred plus years of them setting silent with us actually coming in and wanting to talk to them and trying to communicate. And lots of times they all try, there's so many that come through at once, you can't even understand what they're talking about. And there's other times where a few will come through or one will come through and you can kind of almost have a conversation, believe it or not, which is, that still is crazy to me too, but we've been able to piece a lot of stuff together. We're still going over. There's so many archives to go over. You know, you're talking 100 plus years of archives and news clipping. It's a process. We're enjoying it. We think the people that come there with us enjoy it. It seems like people, you know, actually are thrilled. It's been off limits. No one's ever been allowed to go in this place. So we've been able to open it up. And it's, it's a Michigan thing. It's, it's sad that it's not a national thing because it was the biggest psychiatric facility in the United States. But it's getting more recognition. I think people are starting to know what it's about. And, we're getting inquiries from all over the country now to want to come and visit and investigate with us. So we love it. We love doing it. It's a beautiful place to me. It's a scary place. It has a lot of dark history. And I'm glad that the developer is saving us. It's not going to get tore down. Thank God. It's going to be saved. So that's another bonus. That's another plus that we're able to help save this place instead of hitting the wrecking ball. 
absolutely fantastic news that's you know good job keep up the amazing work and and it's becoming more well known because of you and jeff and joe and all of you guys and it's funny i had to just say that you say you don't really like to go in there by yourself and i remember one time i was just me and joe were kind of messaging each other back and forth and just so you guys all know, Joe is a fellow Detroit Paranormal Expeditions fella, and he's actually a police officer. And he yeah. was saying how he'll go there sometimes by himself and how, like, you know, creepy things will happen. And one time he had to go outside and wait for one of you guys to show up. because oh, yeah. I was... and, and he, you know, he brings his gun with him, too, a lot of times. And, and the thing with Joe, <laughs> what he brings to the team, which is so different, which we're very, very lucky, is that he's a police officer, like you said. Yeah. You know, police officer work is all scientific based and fact based. So this is kind of off the radar of what they typically do. But he's had paranormal experiences while on duty. So this is, you know, he was fascinated with this stuff. He met us last year and actually won the tours. We got to become friends and then we brought him on. We thought it would be a different angle to our group and add something to our group, which it has. It changes the dynamic of how we investigate. You know, we're very lucky because a lot of police officers won't tell my dad was totally against the paranormal stuff. He thought I was goofy for doing it. Oh, wow. Um, but he was a cop, and that's how cops think. They don't talk about stuff like this. It was great that Joe came on. He's been a huge asset. He does that DPX Live where he goes over the you know, evidence review. And it's really, really cool what he does. Yeah, I would come packing too if I could. <laughs> so. Yeah, he can legally do it, so he does. All the but power to him. That, you can't do anything with a ghost, but no, he, he <laughs> call me. Like, you on your way? I said, I'm up, I'll be up there in a few minutes. I'm going to wait outside. I don't want to go back in there by myself. <laughs> I never go in there by myself. I wait outside until someone gets there. I never go in there. I don't like going in there by myself. Day or night, it doesn't matter. Oh, man, I hear you. Well... Todd, before we end, I want to just talk real quick about, like, some evidence. I'm an audio gal. It's about, you know, to me, it's all about those precious gifts from the dead, EVPs, electronic voice phenomenon, the voices of the dead themselves. I want to hear about some of those amazing asylum EVPs. I know you said that in the basement you heard a taunting cackle from a woman. Um, what else have you got and some of your favorite EVPs from Eloise Asylum? We have one. It was actually on a Facebook Live. And uh, I'll start with this story to kind of, there's it, it a little added to the end of it. Jeff was doing a walkthrough because we always do walkthroughs on Facebook Live to show people where we're at. So they do kind of get a feel actually go inside the place that we go to. So we're doing a Facebook Live at Always. One of the viewers had messaged us immediately and said, I heard a woman's voice a couple times. So she, she marked the time. So after we were done about a couple days later, we'll go over all our audio and video. We went over this Facebook Live. And there's a woman saying, what's that? What's that? What's that? It keeps getting closer and closer to Jeff. Hmm. It's an old woman's voice. And you hear it plain as day. It starts off far away down the hall comes closer and then it comes like right to where Jeff had the camera and I Jeff has a theory behind that because if it's someone that was back in the 30s or 40s she sees someone with the iPhone she would have no idea what Jeff had in his hand uh-huh. you know what I mean or, or the camera right um, and then fast forward to this year in July we had an event and this was on the third floor a lot of stuff happens on the third floor and uh, a lady was doing a Facebook live walkthrough and on that video that woman's voice came through again. What? Two times. Yes, the same exact voice. And this is all on the third floor. So it kind of validates, you know, us getting it. And people could say, oh, that's a, I mean, 
mean, we don't fake anything. Everything we put is exactly what we get. You can come up with your own conclusions on our evidence. We don't push it on anyone's throat. We don't say, this is true. This is, this is just what we've caught. Yeah. Believe what you want. But a whole different person, a whole different Facebook Live, wasn't even from this area. She was from New York, came into the Facebook Live, and that same woman's voice came through on her Facebook Live. So to me, that kind of validates that there's something there when two different people two different cameras, two different, a whole year apart almost, get this woman saying something. And the second time, you can't really understand what she's saying. You can just tell it's the same voice. Oh, that's she's incredible. Roaming, roaming the halls of Eloise. To me, the paranormal isn't a science. I think it's a pseudoscience still because it's not recognized as an actual science. And there's no database. There's no way to verify, you know, teams don't work together too much. So, you know, if they did, it'd be great to have like, a huge database of, you know, all your evidence of every location you want to. You just put in this big database and everybody can do research on it, compare what they've got to other people. So all we can go on is what we've gotten with our own stuff and then what other people have gotten from the places we want to, just kind of compare on a small scale. But I would love for it to one day to be like on a huge worldwide scale. I don't think that'll ever happen because, as you know, there's a lot of paranormal drama and teams don't get along and yeah. stuff like that. But if they ever happen to at one time and just could submit all their EVPs and video and pictures into a huge database, have it all logged, there'd be so much more we can do, and maybe it would be considered a real science at that point, but I'm still going to have fun doing it either way. Oh yeah, me too. I, I always joke around saying I'd be the most boring person in the world if it weren't for paranormal, and... I mean, I agree. I think it would be neat if something like that could happen. But unlike me and you, where we know our stuff's legit, we're not manipulating or adding or falsifying anything. But unfortunately, Todd, there are so many phonies in the paranormal community. And it's unfortunate, just like in real life with everything else, like shoplifters and stuff, people ruin everything. You know, it takes one person to ruin something for everybody my mind, like, even it's hard for me to watch some of the um, certain paranormal shows because for my radio show, and I've had people who dealt with those people on the shows, I know a lot of it is falsified, which is unfortunate, but... You know, and, and with, with what you do and with what I do and my group, we don't have to falsify right. anything. We, we're lucky enough, and I don't know what it is. We've been very fortunate to get a lot of evidence. Yeah. Um, you know, most of it, like you said, is just EVPs. It's very rare to get, you know, a shadow figure, it does happen, or any kind of video of a shadow figure, which it does happen. We've been lucky enough to get that twice, but that's hard to get. The easiest way to get evidence is with a digital recorder. There's mm-hmm. no way to fake that stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty impossible to do that. I guess you can manipulate it, and there are teams that manipulate pictures or video stuff. That's what's hard to believe, the pictures and videos, because there's so many different apps, and you can really mess with things so much, but yeah, if you're... You, you get so much evidence, you get some, we get some, you just put it out there. You know what I mean? There's right. No take it. it is what it is. If you believe it, you believe it. If you don't, you don't. You're not going to change anyone's mind. No, absolutely, my friend. Todd, it's always such a pleasure having you on, and one of these times I'll have to have you and Jeff and Joe on to talk about the 6th Precinct. Oh, yes. Yeah, I love that place, too. It's a beautiful building in Detroit, and that we're hoping keeping that one hit a record ball too well, we actually helped with that and he just got a new roof put on so yeah it's, um, we do a fence there and give him the money then when we do the that to help go towards the building to save it so if we can save these places and we can investigate them and have other people investigate and enjoy them like we do that's a huge plus if we can do that so 
Absolutely. Once the are down, they're never coming back. You know? Right. So. Absolutely. So, yeah, you guys, something to look forward to for a future episode is the 6th Precinct. So, Todd, thank you so much for being on. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. I love talking to you, and I love coming on. I will come on anytime you need me to. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Well, check out the others. They're equally awesome. Want a weekly reminder of when the phenomenal episodes come out? Subscribe through any of the podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Deezer, and many others. See you next week, my beautiful friends. I grab my guitar and I play I got the mer-